fear and intimidation, along with concern about how we will be perceived, have paralyzed us. And as a result, and this is just a generalization, the church is not advancing the gospel. In our text today, we find that there were people in Philippi that opposed the church and her message. In just four short verses, Paul writes to the church about being prepared to face opposition, about being battle ready. Listen to the Word of God speak as Pastor Lee shares about a call to action. I want us to look at a passage, just really four verses here in Philippians, and I've entitled it A Call to Action. I think in a few moments you'll see why. Uh, we've already read the text, so I just want to jump right in. I want to start by uh, referencing a verse of Scripture that's found in the book of Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, just maybe make a note of it. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, the prophet who is, who is uh, speaking to the people of Judah who have gone astray, he, he uses some words to kind of describe the, the state of affairs among the people. And he says in Isaiah 5:20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, now think back about that first part. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is what I would call moral insanity. And it should not sound too foreign to you. Much of what is happening in our world today can be described as moral insanity, where evil is being labeled as good, and good is being labeled as evil. There's a real effort to confuse the two. Evil is dressed up and made to appear right and good and normal. It's something that appears in our children's textbooks, uh, on college campuses, on billboards, in television programming, and on social media. It has tremendous financial backing by some very powerful and wealthy people. And its messaging is highly effective. Its messaging is on point. Evil's messaging that parades as something that is good and right is vibrant, it's colorful, it's emotional, and so it appears. By all appearances, right, it's something good. On the other side of that, good is labeled as evil. Narrow-minded, bigoted, archaic, intolerant, and even ignorant. It is oppressed, mocked, ridiculed, and persecuted. Unfortunately, our messaging about truth, about good, is not always on point. Fear and intimidation along with concern about how we will be perceived, have paralyzed us. And as a result, and this is just a generalization, the church is not advancing the gospel. Let me give you a couple of examples of 
uh, what's happening in our society here in America. It won't be anything new to most of you. And I can't give, uh, there's a lot of examples I could give, but we don't have time, right? President Joe Biden recently issued an official proclamation declaring June uh, 2021, so that's not that recent, but as uh, June 21, June 2021 as Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, and Queer Pride Month. Here's what he said. He said, I call upon the people of the United States to recognize the achievements of the LGBTQ plus community. To celebrate the great diversity of the American people and to wave their flags of pride high. Now that's just an example from the highest office in the land of something that is wrong, something that is evil, being painted as something that is good and right and to be embraced. You know, recently we also celebrated, recent's relative, I guess, in, in some of what I'm saying, but we celebrated the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And uh, there's some really good things that have happened as a result of that. Uh, by returning uh, the issue of abortion back to the people in each state, uh, we've seen some good things happen. Over the last year, we've seen 14 states completely ban abortion and six states pass laws severely restricting it. But at the same time, we've seen other states become abortion destinations, passing incredibly extreme laws and incentivizing women to travel to their states to have abortions. Now, uh, these are subjects, among others, that we as a church need to be extremely knowledgeable of and sensitive about and be able to work in the sphere of gospel influence. But, but it's also a reminder for the, us this morning. Here, here's what I want to remind you of as we jump into our text. The battle rages on. The war has been won, but the battle rages on the world, which the Bible tells us is under the influence, under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. The world is constantly squeezing people into its mold, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Constantly uh, trying to mold the minds and the hearts of people. The devil is on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour, according to Scripture. And, and, and we're busy trying to achieve our best life now. And the world is going to hell. Now, you may hear that this morning, and people listening online may hear that this morning and think, well, that's a little extreme. I think pastor might be overstating things this morning. The fact that anyone would think that I'm overstating is evidence that we as churches are being lulled to sleep. We're being taught to kind of ignore and just keep on going. As we look at our text this morning, uh, we're going to come to understand the world in which we live is not a playground, but a battleground. I think many churches see it as a playground. But as we look at this text, we're going to learn that there were people in Philippi that opposed the church and opposed the message of the church. If you look there in verse 1, 
And you see there in verse, um, let's just read the uh, beginning in verse 28, just a, a short verse there. It says, not being frightened in any way of who? Of your opponents. These were Judaizers. These were false teachers. These were pagans. There was a lot of opposition to the church in Philippi. And so what we're going to see in these few verses is Paul addressing the church and helping them to understand how to prepare for opposition, how to be what we might call battle ready. And you'll notice as we go through these things, they're very simple, they're very straightforward, and it's really about a posture. It's really about an attitude, and, and it's, about, it's about a call to action. And so I want us to look at the, the, some of the things here uh, that we would say we might need to do in order to be prepared for opposition. Now let me just say, from what I can see, opposition to the church and its message has always been and always will be. Some of us tend to think that we may go through phases of that, and that battle may heat up from time to time, but the reality is the world in which we live is oppressive to the message of Christ. The first thing I want you to notice that, that we need to do to be prepared for opposition is this. We need to live worthy of the gospel. Live worthy of the gospel. The Bible says there in verse 27, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, in some of your translations, it may say to conduct yourselves in a way, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Uh, some of your translations say live worthy of the gospel. The, the word there in the original language is a word that, that gives us the idea of citizenship. It's a word that uh, from where we get the word politics. And so what the Bible is saying here is that we live as citizens that have been impacted by the gospel. It's another way of referring to believers as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which Paul uses that phrase a little later in the letter. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, it says this, their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. And then he makes a contrast. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Philippi, we know that at this particular time, they were under the control of the Roman government. So if you were a citizen in Philippi, you were a citizen of Rome. Citizenship was held in high esteem. And if you'll remember, it was Paul, while in prison in Philippi, that appealed to his Roman citizenship. Why? Because citizenship brought with it certain privileges, but it also brought with it certain responsibilities. Now, now put yourself in the position of the recipients of this letter. They're hearing this word. They're hearing this phrase. And they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. That they were 
to be responsible to, responsible for the gospel. Uh, they, they would have known that Paul was saying, you belong, you belong and you are in, you belong to and you are influenced by something other than the world, that is the gospel. Paul was exhorting the believers to live in accordance with the rules of heaven, for their lives to demonstrate the powerful impact of the gospel, for their values to match the values of the kingdom. Now, let me just, be, let me just put it in a real simple way. <laughs> Here's what he says. It's important that you live like Christians, not just say that you are. It's important that we live consistently with what we say we believe, consistently with what the Bible teaches. So if we live on earth like citizens of heaven, our lives will not look a lot like the people of the world. To live worthy of the gospel, to respond to the highest callings, and to be good citizens of heaven means... That we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. That's not like the world. To live worthy of the gospel, to be good citizens of heaven, means that we forgive 70 times 7, which means there's no limit to our forgiveness. That's, that's not like the world. It means that we turn the other cheek. It means that... We value and we honor those things that are right and good and moral and pure and ethical. And you get the point. So being able to work in the midst of a culture that opposes you and opposes me and opposes the church and the church's message, We've got to live worthy of the gospel. That, that makes us prepared for what is coming. I remember uh, many years ago when Christy and I moved to North Carolina for me to go to seminary. Uh, we, we'd been there about a year, and the way we were doing things, she was working at night. I was going to school in the day. It was miserable, so we just said, hey, we're going to stop this. Uh, I'm going to find a job. So I started working as a night audit at a hotel. And um, I went in and filled out the application, and I got a call that afternoon. And went in to talk to the lady, and she really didn't do an interview. And this was real interesting. I said, well, don't you want to interview me? She said, no. She said, I see that you go to seminary here. I said, and? She said, we found over the years our best employees are seminary students. I was, I was thankful for that because what she was saying is they're, they're different than other people that we hire. Can our workplace say that about us? They're different than other people because their values are different. The way they talk is different. The way they act, their, their aroma, their very presence is different. They're living lives that are worthy of the gospel. Secondly, he tells us to stand strong. So live worthy of the gospel, stand strong together. There again in verse 27, I'm just going to back up each time. It says, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm 
in one spirit, in one accord. As Paul oftentimes does, he uses words that create images in people's minds. The word picture here is of an army standing strong on the front lines of battle. They are in a fixed position, set and ready, unwilling to yield to the enemy, not willing to be swayed or to be broken, not willing for the line to be broken. They are determined to hold the line. You've heard that phrase before, right? If you've ever seen any old war movies, you'll see a a line of soldiers lined up, and you may even see other lines behind them, right, in ranks. And you may have a captain or a general over here. Battle is starting. It's raging. It's coming. And he says, hold the line. Hold the line. That's what Paul's saying here. Stand firm. But he doesn't just say stand firm. He says stand firm together in one spirit and in one accord. They are much stronger when they are together than they are when they are alone. This is an exhortation. And all of this really is an exhortation by Paul to the church. It's an exhortation to unity and being strong in their faith, not wavering in their beliefs. Now, it's not really important for us to dive into uh, uh, the words here when he's talking about one spirit and in one accord. One kind of refers to the soul. One kind of refers to the mind. But the idea here is one man, unity. He's describing the church as one, being united. It's not the only time that Paul kind of gives the picture in Scripture of the church being an army or needing to hold the line. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, the Bible says, So to, see to it that no one takes you captive. Hmm. No one breaks the line. Now, no one takes you captive. How would they take you captive? Through hollow and deceitful philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. The church is is much like an army. And we're talking in a spiritual sense. We are strongest when we are united. And drawing strength from the Lord and from one another, we are able to hold the line. Now, what, what does this mean? What does it mean? It means that we are united in standing on gospel truth and for gospel truth. We know what the Bible teaches. We believe what the Bible teaches. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and it has no error, contains no error whatsoever, that it is inspired, that it is God-breathed, and we refuse to be influenced or swayed in any other way. We refuse to be swayed or influenced by the moral insanity of our day. We refuse to be influenced even when uh, we have people that we love and know, friends and family. Listen, people all around us are being influenced by the world. 
And this is when it gets easy or uh, it gets challenging for us, but it's also easier for us to break rank and begin to say, well, I am going to sympathize and empathize, and because this is happening in my world, my belief about this is changing. So that's the opposite of what Paul is saying here when he says, stand firm, stand strong together. As I was studying this week, I came across a story about an old man who had several sons, and uh, they were at odds at each other with each other, and the, they were so much at odds with one another that it began to hurt the family business. And so he decided to call them together and teach them a lesson. Uh, he got them together, and he gave one of the, the biggest, strongest of the boys a cane of bamboo. And he said, break this. Of course, they're all thinking, what are you doing, Dad? They think he's crazy, right? So he breaks it. So his dad gives him two sticks of bamboo and says, break that. And he breaks it. And he continues to give him, and he's able to break quite a few. But finally, he gets to a point to where he's got a handful of bamboo. And he is straining, and he is sweating profusely. He's grunting and growling, and he can't break it. He cannot break the bundle. You see, singly or in small bundles, the canes could be snapped easily. But united, the canes had more strength than any one young man. If you haven't figured this out yet, there is something very special and very unique about the local church. And the ability for us to be stronger together is evident in the Scripture. Stand strong together. Hold the line. When there is confusion in our world over sexual identity, hold the line. When people we know and love are confused about their sexual identities, hold the line. When the world is attempting to redefine what a man is and what a woman is, hold the line. When people are questioning the value of human life, whether it is yet born or whether it is old or whether it is deformed, hold the line. When other religions and ideologies and philosophies are promoting that always lead to heaven, hold the line. In verse 28, Paul, we'll get to this in a moment, but I'm going to mention it now. Paul writes about not being frightened in any way by your opponents. When our minds have been transformed by God and we are determined to live for Jesus and stand strong in God's truth, we will be ready for the opposition that comes. But let me just say, that is a mindset that we have to set our minds in a way that allows us to not break rank and go the other way. One of my great concerns, I'm not sure, that the church in America today understands her position in light of eternity and sees herself in a battle for souls. But the church today is looked at in a lot of different ways. And this particular image is not one that seems to be embraced 
quite as much. And the third thing I want you to notice is that we are to contend for the faith of the gospel. So, so it's one thing to take a stand for truth. It's another to seek the advancement of truth. So in one position we're standing, and now Paul says, contend. Contend. Contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, I tend to do this when I'm preparing for a message. I tend to get excited about the passage. Uh, because, uh, because ideally the Lord's speaking to me and just reminding me of some things. And so as I began to read this exhortation and I began to see these words, I got excited. I mean, it was, okay, live, stand, contend, don't be afraid, be willing to suffer. If you don't take anything else away from today, that's what that passage says. Live worthy of the gospel. Stand strong together on the gospel. Now he says, contend for the faith of the gospel. The word contend here gives us uh, imagery of an athlete. So it really is describing a group of people, a group of athletes striving together. Please listen to me this morning. Because one of the things that I don't see much in our society is a church that is striving. So this word here is a very picturesque word, and it's, a, it's an image of the church, but it's an image of a group of people putting forth great effort, actively engaging in struggle, struggling together. It can mean to wrestle. It can mean to labor this is not an exhortation, so hear me this morning. It is not an exhortation for us to be contentious or abusive or violent or aggressive in a physical way. That's not what Scripture teaches. But it is a call to action for the church. It's an exhortation to actively work together for the faith of the gospel. This phrase, the faith here, is talking about a body of truth. So it's contending for a body of truth that we know to be the good news of Jesus Christ. Herein lies the answer to moral insanity. And Paul keeps, he always brings things back to the gospel. When it comes to moral insanity, the answer is not aggression, hate, or condemnation. The answer is not being smarter or having better answers. The answer is not us winning the argument. The answer is the gospel. And the Bible tells us that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. That is what changes things. And the gospel is what Paul is telling the church that they must be willing to contend for. <laughs> Churches wrestle and struggle with a lot of things. 
But when's the last time the church agonized, cried, sweated, put forth the amount of energy that this text seems to indicate that we should when it comes to contending for the gospel? So this is kind of the answer to the problem, right? I mean, the problem is sin. Uh, the things that we talk about that are social ills, the evil that is being portrayed as good, the good that is being portrayed as bad, what needs to happen? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins, was buried in a borrowed tomb and raised from the dead three days later. The fact that he loves you enough to die and pay the penalty for your sins and the sins of the whole world so that anyone who might come in repentance and faith can be saved, can be rescued from their sins. Some of our old music in the church, uh, I'm reminded of some of that, like rescue the perishing, care for the dying. That's who we are. That's who the church is. If we are not that, let's pack it up and go home. Right? I mean, what difference does it make if it's not about the gospel? And if we're not willing to contend? I guess we could ask it this way. Are we contenders? Are we contenders for the gospel? So, as Paul writes this, It's 10 years after he planted the church. He's in a prison cell in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He doesn't know if they're going to spare his life or not. In fact, in this very passage, he says, Hey, I'd like to stick around and help you grow spiritually. If I die, it's gain for me. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Which one's going to happen? I don't know. And then he gets down in these verses and says, If I don't come, make sure that you live worthy of the gospel, that you stand strong together, and that you contend for the faith of the gospel. What he doesn't do from prison is this. He doesn't say, hey, church family, I've been arrested. It's bad. I've been beaten. I hurt. I'm hungry. It's awful. You cannot believe the conditions that I find myself in right now. I'm sad beyond belief. I'm lonely. Nobody is here with me. And I'm probably going to die. I don't know. It's possible that I'm going to be executed. So y'all be careful out there. Y'all tread lightly. Don't offend anybody. Y'all make sure you're quiet and just kind of peaceful and go about your way, stay out of the way of everybody else. Because this same thing might happen to you. That's not what he says, is it? In fact, he says that not being afraid and being willing to suffer is a sign of your salvation and a sign of their impending destruction. So in the way that the church carries itself and preaches and teaches the gospel, it holds up the salvation that we have in Jesus, and then it teaches that those who don't believe will be destroyed in the end. And so he's saying, don't be afraid. Let me read it for you. 
in verse 28. Not being frightened in any way of your opponents, this is a sign of destruction for them. If you're not afraid, if you're bold. The word there really is intimidated. If you're, if you're not intimidated, if you're not frightened. But it is a sign of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting in this conversation. Because what he says is, for some of you, you're going to be giving the gift of suffering. He doesn't necessarily say everyone, but he says that it's a gift that's given. So that you identify with Him, with, with the Lord Jesus, and that you're going you're to identify with Paul too, because that's what he's doing. And I can only say this morning, if there's ever been a time the church of the Lord Jesus Christ needed to say, we're not afraid, and we're willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Ever been a time in my lifetime, it's now. Now, what's interesting to me, because I know that our minds can go a lot of different places with this idea. When we talk about contending for the faith of the gospel, get this, we're talking about fulfilling the Great Commission. We're not talking about picking up arms physically. We're talking about winning the battle spiritually. But we'll never win the battle spiritually with our mouths shut. We can complain about all of the social ills, all of the evil that's being called good. We can talk all about it, but if we ever want to see it change, it'll only change. Not because we're mad about it. Not because we're condemning about it. Not because we harp on it, but because we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And see opportunities for people's lives to be transformed by Him. Someone said, A fearless, united church will astound the world. You know, I'm by nature a very optimistic person. I'm really not a uh, pessimistic person. But as I look around, it seems to me that a lot of what we see in churches today is cowering rather than contending. And what I mean by that is, we just are so worried about what everybody else is going to say. How are they going to feel about me? What are they going to think about me? If we've, we've talked ourselves out of it before we ever go. We say, I know that person, and I know exactly what they're going to say. When I try to share the gospel with them, I know what they're going to say. So why bother? I know they're going to get mad. Well, Maybe. But that's not for us to figure out. It's up for us to contend for the faith of the gospel. When the church at Philippi heard this letter read, they understood they were being told to be willing to die for what they believed. Now think about that for a moment. Most of us in here are not going to be called to die for what we believe. <laughs> but we are called to live for what we believe, and that's another question altogether, isn't it? Most of us aren't going to be called to die for what we believe. But let me just, let's just think about that for a moment. Though we may never be called on to die for what we believe, 
There are only a few things in this world worth dying for. Is the gospel one of them in your mind and in your heart? So we may never be there physically, but we need to move there spiritually. These folks that received the letter on that day understood that they should contend for the gospel no matter what it cost. They, they were to contend as if their lives depended on it. Huh. Ours does depend on the gospel. They're to contend as if other people's lives content, uh, are dependent on the gospel. Let me share a quick story with you as we close. One you may have heard before. It's a story, it's an allegory that goes way back um, it was written in a Michigan Baptist bulletin many years ago. Um, sometimes it's called these days the drawbridge keeper's son. So there was a man who operated a drawbridge over a great chasm. And it was, uh, there was a day when he decided to take his son to work with him. And so his son got there and watched his dad, how he worked. And uh, the, the gentleman was just mainly responsible for pulling the lever, raising the bridge, pushing it, putting it back down as trains would cross the bridge. Well, um, day went on, and the drawbridge was up, and the sun was playing, and they hear, the, they hear the train coming. He had lost sight of his son. He looks around, and he sees the train coming, and he realizes he's got to put the bridge down. And he starts looking for his son, and his son is out up under the bridge playing in the cogs that turn, the giant metal cogs. There is no way for him to get the boy before the train gets there. He has to make a decision. I can rescue my son, and all of these people will plunge to their death on the train. Or I can put the train, I can put the bridge down and save all of these people, but it's going to lead to the death of my son. That's a horrible predicament. He pushes the lever. Drawbridge goes down. His son is mangled in the cogs. The train's going by. People are sitting there in the train car eating and oblivious to what has just happened. He's looking at the train car and he cries out, I sacrificed my son for you people. Don't you even care? Eating, drinking, partying on the train, oblivious to what just happened. One of the things that gets me up in the morning is the idea of making sure the church is not just riding the train. But that we respond to the call to action. Thank you for listening to the Word of God Speak, the sermon podcast of Pastor Lee Merck. We hope that you were blessed by today's episode.